Today we are continuing in 1 Timothy. So if you would like to get your Bibles and open them up to 1 Timothy, we're actually reading a few verses in a few minutes, 6 through 19. 1 Timothy. When are you the most content in life? I've chosen some pictures for you to look at this morning to maybe spur your thinking. But when is your soul most filled? On vacation? When everything is free of pain or stress? When the world is in a good place? When those you love are thriving or your bank account is full? When you can commune in nature? Or after you've had a good evening with friends in front of the television, watching a game, or maybe with a child. We are each unique in the way that we find contentment. But there are two things that I think that we would all agree are true about contentment. One is that we want more of it. We need more because life is full and loud. And difficult and chaotic. The second thing we know is that contentment too often feels like a fleeting sensation that we want to hold on to but can't, however much we try. Mark and I used to joke when life was getting to be too much and the pressure was too high that we were going to clear the decks, sell everything, and go to Montana. There was just something so compelling about going there and breathing, settling in a beautiful place with no obligations to our souls, where we could find rest in a cabin far away from anything and everything. One day we did go to Montana, and it was gorgeous, and we loved every minute of it. But somewhere along the way, we realized, as we always do, that no matter where we go, there we are. And life isn't about escaping or trying to find our soul's desire and stay in that feeling forever. That can't be the goal of life for anyone, especially the people of God. But how much of our lives are given to trying to capture the feeling of being in total peace with everything in our lives? Our longing to be content determine our choices and how we feel about what's going on. In a profound manner. In the part of the letter we study today, Paul begins with the idea of contentment. An idea that I've kind of toyed with and thought about all week. The word contentment here is autarkia. And it comes from the Stoics. It means self-sufficiency independent of circumstances. Now, that definition makes us pause because it tells us that we experience true contentment not based necessarily on what is happening around us, but on what is happening within us. Our contentment doesn't come just from external situations, no matter how lovely or perfect. And Paul takes it a step further by showing us that the church is to be dependent on the Lord. That we're actually not supposed to be self-sufficient, but that we are to find him sufficient for everything and not ourselves. So let's read the passage together. 1 Timothy 6, starting 
at verse 6. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, Command them not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of the life that is really life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, speak to us now, we ask, through your word, through your Holy Spirit. Help us reason with you about our lives. Amen. Paul is drawing this letter to a close, this letter to Timothy that is really written to the church at Ephesus. Right before this, He had been again reminding his readers that whoever teaches something contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ is conceited and understands nothing. He said those who teach meaningless things do so because they want to show how great they are. And Paul gives a litany of unrighteous behavior that stem from this pride. We can always see rotten fruit from the lives of those who pretend to follow God and want people to follow them. In addition uh, to wanting to be seen as the authority, these teachers were also hoping to cash in on their profession. In other words, they were making religion a commercial enterprise, hoping to get rich off the people who were in the church. They weren't there for the good of Christ's body. They were not there for the glory of God. So Paul addresses both here and reminds Timothy that he and other leaders in the church are true leaders of Jesus and they have to be different. The teachers were finding great financial gain in what they were teaching in their wrong theology. And Paul turns it around to remind Timothy that there's more profit in godliness 
when we choose to be also content in the Lord. The passage reminds us how to find our true contentment in God, not longing for material abundance, but in following Jesus. Discipleship isn't just the forgiveness of sin. It also means that our lives reflect the sufficiency of God. Paul gives words here on how to find contentment in this life. Remember, this is a practical book. It's full of everyday wisdom for the church. And the church is confused about what it means to be holy because of the different messages that they're getting from the leadership. So Paul wants to give them perspective so that they would see how God wants them to live dependent on him. So there are two questions I want to talk about today. One is, what takes away, what steals, what destroys our contentment? And the other is, what helps us to know contentment? So we're going to take each of these questions in turn with a couple of thoughts underneath it from the passage. If we're going to ask what brings true contentment in life, I think it's fair to ask what also brings discontent in life. There are many things, but Paul offers two specific things that rob us of our peace, both which focus on money. First, Paul says we have little peace when we're not happy with what we have. In verse 7, we're reminded that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Paul says we should be happy with the basic necessities and not focus on more than we need. Food to eat every day and clothes on our body should be enough. We hear this in the simplicity of what is being said and that might appeal to us. But we live in a culture and a time where there is more stuff than any of us need at the stores around us. Do you ever go to some of the stores and you think, where in the world is all of this stuff going to land? Where is it going to go? Truly. While people in different places, even in our own city, are starving and don't have a place to eat. By the standards of Paul's day, many of us in this room would be quite rich. By the standards of our world today, most of us are very wealthy. In our discontent, though, we don't always see things that way. In our desire to have more, we sometimes end up very unhappy when we've been blessed with rather a lot. I read a story this week that made me think it's not true. It's like an allegory. A philosopher put a sign on his house one day that said this. I will give this house to any person who can prove to me that they are content. I know it's weird. After a while, someone came knocking at the door and said, Hey, I saw your sign out front and I want to claim the house. He said, I am perfectly content. And the philosopher said, Well, what do you mean by that? The man said, I have everything I want. All the money I want. Everything I need in life that could satisfy, I am perfectly content. And the philosopher said, friend, if you are so content, why do you want my house? (laughs) Paul, who's writing this, had learned to be content in all circumstances. So he writes to the Philippian church. He said, whether I have very little or whether I have a lot. He discovered his attitude was key to how he felt about what he had. Writing from house arrest to the Philippian church, he writes the most joyful letter of his career, reminding us what we have to be thankful for. 
We're not content because we have everything we want. We're content when we choose to be grateful for what we have, and it's enough. And that's so countercultural in this age in America for certain. Paul goes on to say that those who want to be rich fall into a trap from which it is hard to escape. The language that he uses here is extreme, showing us that the desire to have more is such a powerful obsession. We know this is true either from firsthand experience or knowing someone for whom making wealth was their life's purpose. All of us have a relationship with money. It's one of the first things that we talk about in premarital counseling. Tell us about how your parents raised you. Tell us about how they valued money. Because the person who's sitting next to you, that you're committing your life to, they were raised by different people. They value money differently. And you are going to do this a little bit. So let's talk about it. Because all of us have a relationship with money that runs from healthy to toxic. That comes from our family of origin, but also has been shaped by our experiences in life where money played a huge part. And we reacted out of fear or covetousness or comparison. All of us understand what Paul is saying because the relentless messages of more are constantly barraging us from everywhere. Paul quotes a famous ancient proverb in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That saying today is quoted by many people, regardless of their beliefs, but oftentimes it's remembered incorrectly. It is sometimes quoted as this, money is the root of all evil. That is not true, nor it is what, or what is being conveyed here. Like all idols, money only has the power and value that it's given by governments and individuals. Another way it's repeated is this. Love of money is the root of all evil. No, it is the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil perpetuated in our lives. Paul is communicating the truth here that we don't want to get wrong. Having money, even though the world counts it as great gain, doesn't come close to life with God. In our eagerness to have more, sometimes we can lose our souls. Paul says some have wandered away from the faith and have come to all kinds of grief because of it. Not just discontent, they lose everything dear because of chasing wealth that looks so enticing. There's a Roman saying in Paul's day that said that wealth is like seawater. Far from quenching a person's thirst, it intensifies it. The more you get, the more you want. So let's pause for a moment and think about what our relationship is with money right now. It doesn't matter how much we have or how little we have. It matters what power and place we give material wealth. Paul is reminding us we receive life and eternal life apart from any kind of financial gain. So how is your attitude today towards money? Are you discontent with what you have? Are you happy with what you've been given? 
If you are in danger of losing your faith and your eagerness to be rich or being pierced by many pains, I would encourage you to talk to somebody honestly about that. Allow God to bring a way out of the trap. Secondly, we want to see from this passage what gives contentment. Paul gives four actions that will help us here. The first is found in verse 11. Paul begins by calling Timothy man of God, which is reminiscent of what leaders in the Old Testament were called when they spoke for Yahweh. This elevates the stature of his friend and highlights Paul's strong challenge to him to be different. Paul is scripting Timothy to remember that he is more than what he desires. And he serves as a contrast to the other teachers whose thirst for wealth were obscuring their service. He goes on to tell Timothy, shun, shun what I have just been talking about, what I've just been writing about. Shun the love of money and put your energies into different places. He wants him to pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. It's a stellar list found in the character of God himself, which makes me think that Paul is telling his young friend to pursue the Lord. As you look at this list, what have you been pursuing? What needs attention? These attributes belong to the Lord. And they are attributes that he is growing in you. When we attempt to find commitment, we find contentment in the person of God. In acknowledging who he is and being more like him. Spending time pursuing who he is will lead us to a soul more filled. Secondly, Timothy is told to fight the good fight of the faith. I think that seems a bit contrary after what we just read. Pursue God and then fight. The idea here is that we fight our inner desires. We don't fight those around us. I was thinking how fighting has a connotation of being aggressive and messy, painful, and something that most of us want to avoid. But we are in a fight for our lives and for our souls. And God's life is worth a fight. We forget sometimes that we're in a spiritual battle and we have to be vigilant about getting rid of those things that cause us discontent. Thirdly, Paul tells Timothy to keep confessing Jesus as Lord. This is the main way we fight the fight. We battle temptation by seeking other things more than taking hold of the life God gave us. Paul encourages Timothy to remember how he first came to Jesus. No one... Not even ourselves can question the experience that we have been given when we first know Jesus and how he called us by name. When did you first know Jesus? When did you first confess him as Lord? There was a time that you made Christianity your own apart from your parents or your friends or anyone else. And you surrendered your soul. Timothy is being exhorted to keep the faith until he meets Jesus face to face. Paul is so taken by the testimony of Christ, he breaks out into a confession of his own. Like last week, I want us to read this together because they are words of affirmation of our Lord Jesus. Let's read together. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. There is no one above Jesus in anything. Remember what Paul is talking about here. Don't look at money. Don't fret about getting more. Look at Jesus. He is your true treasure. He will help you find what you've been longing for. It's not riches. It's him. There's no end to his life in us. And giving him proper honor and eternal place as king, we find our souls expanding and feel our contentment rise. Lastly, Paul encourages us to do good with what we have. Paul returns, circles back to the conversation about wealth. Instead of talking to those who don't have money and want it, he speaks to those who are rich. His words again are spot on. The drive for wealth and needing to keep it can make a person selfish. It can cause the focus to be on the wrong place and on keeping the money safe and in our hands. Paul says that being rich can make people think that they're better than anyone else and drive them to put their trust in something that's not guaranteed. The antidote for this is to first simply enjoy what God has given for our pleasure. It's right there in verse 17. It's not a sin to have wealth. Enjoy it, Paul says, and then continue to give away what you have, using it to bless others. This will give a huge sense of well-being and free us from the power of needing more or having the love of money form our identity and our behavior. People are more important than money. Generosity is at the core of God's heart. He has lavished so much on all of us. If wealth is part of what he has blessed you with, be like him and give according to his will. In doing these four things, pursuing God's character, fighting the good fight, confessing Jesus as Lord, and doing good to the poor, Timothy will be able to show people who God is. He will be able to show them what life is like. They will see the joy of one whose sufficiency is found in Christ and not in the things of this world. I think if we want to be truly content in this life, we have choices. We can take hold of the life. That truly is life, like Paul says. Or we can hold on to those things which will disappear when Jesus returns or calls us home. This passage reflects something that we all grapple with every day. Will we we be content with what God has given? Or will we allow our discontent to drive us to acquire more and more and more? Contentment comes from an inward state of our heart. It is not dependent on what happens outside of us as much as it hinges on how our soul shapes what is happening. So may, may we allow the Lord to shape our souls for eternity. Let's pray.